Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We've got another great show for you today. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Jeff Ponce. Jeff, it's an exciting time around baseball. It's clinching season. Lots of teams punching their tickets to the playoffs. We've got September call-ups. We've got some front office drama with firings. And we've got some really exciting pennant races here coming down to the wire. I have to say, Jeff, you know, October is probably my favorite month of the sports calendar just because you've got postseason baseball plus college football, NFL, you know, everything's underway, NHL gets going. But the last few weeks of September, from a pure excitement standpoint, it's certainly up there. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think if you look, I was checking it actually yesterday as the games were concluding. And, you know, there's six teams, effectively sort of seven teams in the chase in the NL wild card for three spots, which is really exciting. Um, and then the AL side, you know, you have, I guess, five teams sort of vying for that, but it's fairly close. And, um, you know, of course, Tampa's obviously set themselves apart. They clinched yesterday, as does Baltimore, um, sort of in like uh, uh, a classic, like, you know, two guys punching each other and they both sort of fell down <laughs> and fell into the playoffs. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, outside of, uh, of Tampa really setting themselves apart in the wildcard chases, the Phillies are what three or four games up at this point. Um, and there's just a lot of teams that are there in the mix. So these last few weeks, I mean, every game at this point really seems to matter and can swing the standings. And um, I'd have to go back and check, but I, I felt as if, um, the amount of teams with viable playoff chances uh, seem as deep as it's been, uh, even in this in this new format. It just seems like there's so many different uh, circumstances that can shake out here over the last couple of weeks. So I think an exciting finish to an exciting season. Yeah, no question about it. You've got six teams vying for three wildcard spots in the National League. And in the American League, as you mentioned, the Rays have clinched a postseason spot. But those final two spots, you've got three teams really in it with Toronto, Texas, and Seattle. Texas and Seattle, of course, also in the division race, which is very, very important because whoever wins the West gets a first-round buy out of the wildcard round. So a lot of races still to be decided, but we do have a few that have wrapped up. Uh, four teams have clinched postseason spots, all within the last uh, week to 10 days or so. The Braves have clinched their sixth straight division title. The Dodgers have clinched their 10th division title in the last 11 years. The Rays clinched their fifth straight playoff appearance. And first and foremost, the Orioles clinching their first playoff berth since 2016. Again, we talk about Braves, Dodgers, Rays. They've been perennial postseason participants the last few years. But the Orioles have been building toward this. And it's certainly been a, a bit of a roller coaster for Orioles fans in Baltimore. From 2012 to 2016, the Orioles had the most wins of any American League team. From 2017 to 2021, they had the fewest wins of any American League team. Top to bottom, nothing in the middle. 
We saw them turn upward a little bit last year in 2022 and the rebuild kind of reached, I don't want to say it's pinnacle because the pinnacle would be winning the world series, but um, they obviously were in a very, very aggressive rebuild the last four or five years. And the reward came, they clinched a postseason spot with a thrilling, thrilling victory over the Rays yesterday. Jeff, when we look back at this Orioles rebuild, there were definitely some very, very, very rough years, but in the end, it worked out. And I've written about this and talked about it. For every rebuild that works, there's one that doesn't. You look now, you can say, oh, the Orioles worked. Well, the Tigers and Royals started rebuilds around the same time, and both of them did not work. So there's always a risk anytime you choose to bottom out like this. But the Orioles successfully did it in the sense that it got them to the top of the AL East where they are right now. They're in first place in the division the best record in the American league. And, you know, I know for me, I kept waiting for them to fall off, waiting for them to fall off. And it just never happened. And, and to their credit, they were right. And, and some of my doubts uh, were proven wrong. When you look at this Orioles rebuild, you know, big picture, what do you think they did right? Sure. And, you know, I, I since my early days at baseball America going on two years now. Um, and I think like when I first started here, we were at that sort of precipice where it was, Things are either going to go well, and they have for the Orioles in this rebuild, or they could have gone poorly. And I know a lot of on, folks on staff, obviously we have very smart staff, um, had conflicting opinions. You know, they were it was somewhat divisive at the time. And I still think getting to that next level of signing free agents is something that has been talked about pretty consistently the last two off seasons. We're going to head into a third now where I think the pressure's really on this time, regardless of how things shake out in October. Um, but you look at what Mike Elias, outside of you know ownership and all the other stuff around the organization, if you just look at the job that Elias has done, I think he, his people you know, in the front office, whether it be analytics, scouts, et cetera, have done an excellent job of targeting particular profiles and what it seems to be on the position side is hitters that have above average power, make good swing decisions, um, have at least average or better contact. And it's a rare combination, but there are guys out there like this and they put a high emphasis on positional value as well. If you dig through this Orioles organization, there's not a lot of guys that we are like, I don't think he has a position. I mean, just go right down the list. I mean, you know, even if it's someone who's maybe further down this defensive spectrum is a corner outfielder or, you know, a second baseman or something, they're usually a pretty solid second baseman. Connor Norby is a very good second baseman. Um, even like Samuel Basayo, there's questions about whether he sticks behind the plate or not. He's got a 70 arm, you know, maybe some people would put an 80 on it, frankly, because it's so strong. So, you know, I, I think they've done a really good job now particularly in the draft not just on the prep side or the college side but just really players that they've brought in from that that particular funnel they've done a great job of targeting particular traits we're starting to see the international side of things turn around a little bit more um and they gambled on high upside hitters for the most part and sp spread their money pretty well in a smart way which i think not everybody does that. I think that's a folly for a lot of teams. And we've talked about this before is sort of spreading that draft bonus pool around. Um, they've done a good job of it. You know, we've seen the Adley Rushman and Gunnar Henderson. They're not spreading it a ton there, but still like, you know, we look back on that draft, they hit it in multiple guys. They've done that a few times now. I think that's gone a long way for this rebuild. The other thing that I think you see with this team too, and, you know, 
there's certainly a data-driven component to it that I think maybe differs from the Tigers' previous regime or the Royals. Uh, but also, I think this might be the biggest factor is how they've manipulated their 40-man roster over these couple of years. When they had some down years, they did a really good job of taking flyers on players that maybe were in a bad you know, organizational fit, weren't getting opportunities in the big leagues. They saw some low-hanging fruit that they could improve upon. They've really done a good job of that, of bringing a lot of those players in. Um, and even some of the trades they've made, you know, they got uh, Ianer Cano more or less as a throw-in, and now he's probably their de facto closer or their most important reliever now that Bautista's down um, going into the postseason. So, and there's other, you know, names like that too. We don't want to sit here all day long and, and name all the different players that they've added, but they've given some guys, you know, opportunities, reclamation projects that have turned out to be pretty good. And I'll say the other part of it as well that maybe is a little bit underrated in all this is Cedric Mullins, Anthony Santander. There were some good players on this roster. There was a solid core um, and they were able to supplement that build upon it and add some really high end players. And we're going to continue to see that for the next couple of years as Jackson Holiday, Mayo and some of these other players make their way to Baltimore. Yeah, that last point you hit on is really, really important. I think you have to acknowledge Dan Duquette and the previous regime did leave some good players in this organization. They obviously tore everything down at the 2018 trade deadline. And you go back and look, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, Grayson Rodriguez, those guys were already in the organization. Felix Bautista was already in the organization. Anthony Santander is one of the best Rule 5 draft picks in a while. He was taken under the previous regime. So I think you have to acknowledge that the previous regime did bring in some good young talent. And to the credit of Michael Ice and his group, they came in, recognized it. A lot of times we see new GMs, new front offices come in and essentially say, hey, we want to bring in our own guys and just get rid of the old regime's players. And a lot of times that's when mistakes get made, when you end up giving away really good players who, if you had taken the time to really sit back and evaluate, you would have realized he was someone worth keeping. So I think you have to give the Orioles and their front office credit for recognizing, hey, these are guys worth keeping. Let's continue to help them grow and get better. And rather than saying, oh, they're not our guys, they don't fit our profile or X, Y, Z, let's take the tools we have and the knowledge we can bring and help these talented players mm -hmm. be the best versions of themselves. And it sounds easy, but it's not because a lot of times, like I said, front offices want to bring in, quote unquote, their own guys, often to the detriment of their team long term. So I think that's the first thing you have to give this new regime credit for while acknowledging the good work Dan Duquette and his scouting staff did to bring those guys in. Having the number one overall pick in Adley Rutschman, I mean, that was just a perfect setup. He was the clear cut, not only number one pick in that draft, but the best draft prospect to come around since Bryce Harper. Again, give the Orioles credit for not overthinking it and doing what they should have done. Um, but I think really where you start to see the drafting really, really start to pick up as, hey, they did a good job here. Talk about taking Gunnar Henderson with the first pick of the second round that year. I mean, Gunnar Henderson was considered a very good prospect. Again, he's one of the top 50 picks in the draft, but he was not by any means considered an elite, elite player. The Orioles saw something in him, helped him develop, helped him get better. And now he's one of the best young players in baseball. And, and you look throughout what they've done, their drafts. Heston Kirstad just made his major league debut after some of his health concerns. He had a really good year in AAA this year. Colton Kowser got to AAA really, really quickly, hit well. He got up to the majors, seen guys like Jordan Westberg. So this 
Orioles front office did a really, really good job drafting position players to supplement the good position player core that was already here. It's not a surprise to me that this offense has become dynamic and exciting and never say die. And they were really one of the most exciting teams in baseball because of that. My reservation was on the pitching side. They really did not invest a lot of resources, whether in free agency, whether in the draft. Really, they were trying to kind of find some veteran stop gaps. You know, Tyler Wells was a good rule five pick. But I really had a lot of questions about if they were going to have the pitching to get them through a 162-game season and be effective. And to be fair, it's not like they have a dynamic pitching staff by any means. But there's two guys in particular, two young starters, that the improvements they've made are really, really impressive and are a big reason why the Orioles are where they are. The first is Grayson Rodriguez, as we talked about, drafted under the previous regime, was super talented from day one. You could see that in low A when I saw him uh, pitching against Greensboro. He was a, a wow pitcher. Came up this year, really, really struggled, went back down to AAA. I wrote about this a few weeks ago, improved his fastball command, his slider command, got his confidence back. And he's been one of the better starting pitchers in baseball since he came back up, since the All-Star break. He's tied for fourth in ERA behind Blake Snell, Pablo Lopez, Kodai Senga. He's tied with Tanner Bybee for the fourth lowest ERA in the major leagues since the All-Star break. And he just threw eight innings the other day. He's been every bit an ace. But the biggest reclamation project to me in a way, and I think the biggest testament to the Orioles pitching development and what has helped them be successful on the mound, even though they really haven't invested much in pitchers, is Kyle Bradish. And I want to go back. I saw a lot of Kyle Bradish when he was in high A in the Angel system and Inland Empire. At that time, Kyle Bradish had a 91 to 93 mile an hour fastball that cut right into barrels. He had a low 80s changeup that was not a good pitch. He had very fringy command. The only thing he had was he had a good top to bottom breaking ball and he could uh, manipulate it a little bit, add some more power. It was a slider and a curveball, but they're really the same shape, just the slider had a little more power. And you saw me said, yeah, this guy's probably uh, a curveball or breaking ball heavy reliever. And I talked to evaluators from really good scouting organizations when it comes to pitchers. And even they had him as a depth starter, a low leverage reliever. I mean, they had threes and fours on him. It was consistent. And I, I'm not saying I saw him like once. I saw him many times. It was the same thing every time. And the Orioles, to their credit, saw the breaking ball, and said, we can work with this. They moved him to the first base side of the rubber, which was smart because the natural, move, natural movement on his pitches was going to play better than it was from the third base side of the rubber where I saw him. They added a sinker because, again, that cut ride forcing fastball he had was just not a good pitch. And all this, and you saw him add velocity. The changeup got firmer. To me, Kyle Bradish was a one-pitch depth arm, maybe reliever type that they turned into one of the better starting pitchers in baseball in terms of young right-handers. And that to me is a testament to the pitching infrastructure they've put in place. Again, Grayson Rodriguez taking a step, it's a testament to them, but you know, he was already really talented and you certainly see what they did with Tyler Wells. That was impressive. Um, Yenner Cano, Felix Bautista took steps under the Orioles regime, but to me, Kyle Bradish kind of epitomizes what the Orioles have been able to do with their pitching staff and how they've been able to be good enough on the mound. Again, this is not an elite pitching staff by any means. But when you have this offense, if the rotation's just good enough and you have some guys who can close out games, you're going to be okay. And I think the Orioles, to their credit, did just enough on the pitching side to make that happen. I would still like to see them invest more in pitchers, whether it's trade capital and prospects, money and free agency, top draft picks. But 
that was my skepticism was whether they'd have enough pitching to compete. And to their credit, they put infrastructures in place to help guys get better beyond what most teams even saw possible. And because of that, their pitching staff has been good enough for them to be as good as they've been with the offense they have. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, they've had a couple examples of uh, players like that. You know, Bradish is certainly one. Dean Kramer, I think, has exceeded expectations from what I had anticipated he would turn out to be. Um, has given them a you know fairly you know above average season, frankly. Um, John Means is now back in the fold, which was a guy who, before his injury, you know, plague that he's dealt with over the last couple of years, looked like he was really breaking out. Um, and sort of the old wily veteran, they've they've gotten some decent seasons out of out of Kyle Gibson as well, um, which I think you know once again is just a credit to um, not only being able to develop, but just sort of. I think a better term is like even just manage um, these guys at the major league level. Uh, you have to constantly be making adjustments, evolving, coming up with game plans, uh, and then finding guys that are, you know have an ability to execute said game plans. Right, so that's a big part of it. But yeah, he's. Uh, I, I think just overall, you know, Bradish is certainly the primary example of their pitching development, and just overall, they've done a good a good job developing. I think we've seen Cedric Mullins and Mount Castle and all these guys become better players under the tutelage of, you know, that front office. And I think how individualized they've become in terms of how they do develop, which is different than a lot of other organizations. So here's a question for you. Are you surprised it worked? Did you think it was going to work? Um, I tended to be a bigger believer. So yeah, I mean, I thought it would work on the hitting side for sure. I was a little skeptical in terms of how things would work with pitching because it didn't seem like they were, and we talked about this already investing a lot of capital just in young pitching prospects that they could develop even in sort of the mid rounds uh it wasn't just like you know they don't draft anyone in the first or second round there weren't a lot of like third to sixth round picks um under elias if we go back on the pitching side of things so i think that's a big a big part of it um but you know to answer it simply yeah i, I this was one team that i believed in because i thought that a lot of their processes were rooted in Lunau Astros processes and I felt as if they had enough of an absentee front office that they might actually give them enough leeway and, and run away to make it happen we'll talk about high and bloom later in the show but I think Boston Philadelphia New York Chicago you know those are marketplaces maybe Seattle there's some other places too where the runway wouldn't have been necessarily so long on a rebuild yeah, it's a fair point. I think for me, again, I'm not surprised they've developed this juggernaut offense that's just super exciting, never out of a game, you know, one to nine, up and down the lineup that can that can hurt you. Um, but I I was skeptical that it would work for the reasons I stated about the lack of investments in pitching and, and also not being really convinced that ownership would make the level of investment needed to get this team over the top. I, I do think that there are still, as you mentioned, things that can be done to help them be a true world series contender year in and year out. You mentioned the Astros method and it's also the Cubs method draft and develop your hitters and go out and acquire your pitchers. You know, both the Cubs and Astros gave out some very large contracts and made some very big trades for ACE type pitchers. You talk about the Astros, the trades for Justin Verlander, Garrett Coles, that Granke, the Cubs, you know, giving John Lester $155 million signing John Lackey. There came a point where both had to expend 
a lot, whether in prospect capital or dollars to get those ace level pitchers. And I still am curious whether the Orioles will ever do that. And if they don't, it's going to make it that much harder for them to actually win a World Series. But that said, they have already exceeded my expectations. I will openly admit it. I was an Orioles skeptic. I just did not think. I thought this was going to be one of those rebuilds that maybe they got one year. They'd be okay, 86 and 76, maybe 88, 74. But um, great offense, not great pitching staff, and they'd be first-round fodder. And yet here they are with the best record in the American League. And the last thing I want to finish with you on with the Orioles, Jeff, do you think they are a World Series contender this year with the current group they have? Again, they have the best record in the American League playing in a very tough division. Do you see them as a true World Series contender? This is a good question, and, it, and it's a tricky one. Um because I think if we look at on paper, there's no clear cut favorite necessarily in the AL. I, I would say maybe Houston, just simply because they've been there before. You got Verlander in the front. You know, there's still enough pitching depth. They have a manager who's done it, but they're older. You know, it's a lot of baseball that that entire team is going to have to play again to get deep into the postseason. Um, you have the twins who personally, you know, if they don't win a series, it wouldn't shock me. Uh, they've had a good season. I, I think, you know, have kind of met what the expectations were from last year to a degree. Um, but I think like, I would still probably put my money on Tampa Bay and Texas over Baltimore. And part of it is, is both those teams have the two highest run differentials, positive run differentials in the American league. Um, I like the offenses. Um, the thing is with the Rangers pitching is obviously with the injuries that they've had to incur over the last entire season, <laughs> yeah. it's probably a little bit difficult to bet on them. Um, uh, it, it really depends how the last couple of weeks shake out, but you know, I would still bet on the Rays over the over the the Orioles in a series, and I think I would probably bet on the Astros over the Orioles in a series. I have to see them do it first because I think once once you get to the dance for the first time and you're in a real series and you have to face the same opponent day after day and you're not really battle tested. And I know these are, you know, I, I'm typically very analytical and scientific about my opinions on stuff. This is very much like rooted in just like watching the game and feel and that sort of thing. It's a different atmosphere. It's a different atmosphere. And I just don't know. The Orioles have to prove it to me first. So just, I guess I'm not a total skeptic, uh, just doubting a little bit, but I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't think that they're a world series contender. They should be. I mean, they've, they've, you know, they've won 93 games at this point. They could win a hundred games and, that certainly sounds like a like a World Series contender, but game one starter, you know, it's probably going to be Braddish. Do you think he's good enough to carry the like seven innings against a really good lineup? Or go so, times Grayson Rodriguez? That really cuts into their depth, and you've lost a really high leverage arm that I think gave you some flexibility with Cano to use him in the seventh inning or sixth inning in like really high leverage situations that could swing the momentum of the game. Um, I just don't know how they fit necessarily versus some of these other clubs. 
So the starting pitching point you make is an important one because I think looking at it, that would be the obvious spot where you say, you know, Kyle Bradish, Grace Rodriguez game one and two starters that that doesn't match up with, you know, what some of the other teams can throw out there. Even the twins, they're game one and two starters, you know, the Mariners who aren't even in the playoff picture, they're game one and two starters. But I'll say this, and I think it's it's interesting because you're right. Both these guys are very young, not battle tested yet. But without a ton of fanfare, they've been pitching like two of the better pitchers in the American League for a while now. Um, Kyle Bradish, you go back the last uh, three months, you know, June 14th to September 14th, he has a 2.53 ERA. Grayson Rodriguez, as we talked about, 2.59 ERA since he came back up in the, after the All Star break, fourth lowest ERA in the majors, or and uh, I should say tied for the fourth lowest ERA in the majors. The two of them have been pitching at the level of true number one ace type starters for, and again, in Grace Rodriguez's case, two months now and Bradish for three months. So I think there is a chance we're underestimating them based on name value. Just when you look at what they've actually been doing over the last few months, and both of them have been pitching relatively deep into games. Talk about Grace Rodriguez just going eight. Bradish just went seven against the Rays. You know, he's pretty consistent giving you six. Here's seven. Here's seven in the third. A couple other seven inning starts. So I, I think that those two give them a better chance than maybe you would necessarily assume from the outside looking in. I think that having home field advantage is going to be huge if they can lock up this number one seed. Camden Yards has been rocking. I think the fact they're not going to have to play a wild card series, you talk, if they lock it up, you talk about the Rays, they've had a lot of starting pitching injuries, you know, who knows where they're going to be if they have to get through a wild card series. I I do think there is a chance this Orioles season is kind of like the Braves in 2018 where, Hey, it's their first time there. Maybe they bow out in the first round after a good fight, but it's just going to gear them up for more success in the future. But I do think that the combination of home field advantage, the combination of not having to play a wild card series and with how well Bradish and Grayson Rodriguez have been pitching for a few months now, again, I'm not going to sit here and say I would pick them to come out of the American League. I would still defer to the Astros. They're the defending champs. They've reached four of the last six World Series. And they're a lot of the season, they were not whole. But you have Altuve back now. You have Alvarez back now. Bregman's been hitting better. I think you still have to defer to the Astros. But... It's going to sound weird because I'm doing a total 180. I've been the Orioles skeptic the whole way, but just watching the way this offense is banging, watching the atmosphere at Camden Yards, watching the confidence they're playing with, I'm not going to sit here and completely dismiss them. I I think the Rangers on paper are a better team, but the Rangers just not playing well. They haven't been for a while. They're really, really hurt. You know, the Mariners, you think they've got it, and then they just – they don't quite – over the top like you think they should they've, they've come back to earth a little bit since that red hot stretch they're currently out of the playoff picture i think i've been an oral skeptic for a long time i would certainly feel better if felix bautista was healthy but at this point i, I think you have to give it to them they've done everything that they've set out to do and i wouldn't just dismiss them out of hand they're not my favorites but i probably mm-hmm. take the number two behind the astros right now yeah i don't think it's unreasonable at all you know, um, it just depends how things shake out. And I, I, I just always have trepidation with teams like this that perform really well in the regular season and they're young and talented. And then that second season happens and just yeah. it doesn't necessarily always look the same, you know. Um, 
So I, you know, they've they've won all the big battles in the regular season. They're hitting on all cylinders at this point. It's a great lineup. Um, you know, I think even adding DL Hall into the bullpen gives them some depth. Uh, they have six starters right now, so depending on how they do and structure their playoff roster, um, they might have guys that can go multiple innings. They might use means that way. Uh, Kramer might get used that way. Um, you know, it, and honestly, that might give them an advantage over the Rangers. So I'm kind of walking back my Rangers statement. <laughs> the more I've looked at it on paper, um, yeah, just because, you know, their starting pitching is pretty shallow right now, and I'm not sure I would take many other teams' bullpens over the Orioles' bullpen, even without Bautista uh, in the American League right now, just when you mix in the back end of that rotation and what that does in a shorter series, et cetera. So should be interesting um, how it all shakes out, but I think you're right. I think the Astros probably are the clear favorites right now just because of who they are. I'd still have the Rays ahead of the, uh, uh, of the Orioles, but – that might be silly too. Um, they've just been so good this season. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if you know they used up they used up their peak powers in the opening month of the season or not. That's certainly a possibility. Um, but when you look at the pace that they've been running throughout the season, um, it's pretty remarkable in comparison to everybody but the Orioles in the American League. And it could even change. I mean, there's a chance that the Rays end up with home field advantage if they're just a little bit hotter over the next couple of weeks it's only a game difference absolutely one other bullpen piece i need to mention with the orioles the acquisition of shintaro fujinami from the ace has been a great again putting guys in the best positions it was clear coming out of japan he should not be a starter doesn't have the control for it just put him in the bullpen let him breathe fire and he's done that that's been a great acquisition again another example the orioles taking a guy putting him in a better position putting him in the right role and letting him succeed so We'll see what uh, they're able to do here these final few weeks. They can hold off the Rays and take home field advantage. And again, it's been a great year for the Orioles. Congratulations to Mike Elias. Congratulations to the front office. Again, I have been a skeptic. I have been public with that skepticism. I was wrong. They were right. Props to them. This is a huge moment for the franchise. And I look forward to seeing what they're able to do further on in in September and into October. All right, Jeff. Well, that is 30 minutes of Orioles talk for uh, for us. We still have a lot more to hit on. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk more baseball. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
That's indeed.com slash baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Welcome back to Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Jeff Ponce. Jeff, we just talked about the Orioles, first place in the American League East, clinched their first postseason spot since 2016. And really just good vibes all around in Camden Yards, uh, which is one of the most beautiful ballparks in in the country, in my opinion. And um, it's just really cool to see everything kind of come to fruition the way everyone hoped. On the flip side in the American League East, um, you have the Red Sox, who, as we sit here recording, are currently in last place. Uh, Late last week, they fired Chief Baseball Officer Haim Bloom. And, you know, this is an organization with a very, very proud history that was – in an ALCS as recently as 2021, won a World Series in 2018. And as we all know, in Boston, even if you're successful, you typically don't get a very long runway. I still go back to 2018 where Dave Dombrowski literally built one of the best teams of our lifetime, the 2018 Red Sox, and they won the World Series, and he was out of a job less than a year later. Um, Heim Bloom was fired after two last place finishes uh, as well. They're currently in last place this year. And one ALCS appearance, so not quite four full seasons. Jeff, first and foremost, um, just your initial reaction, especially being in Boston, someone who has covered the Red Sox, knows this organization inside and out, as well as the city and the fan base and the expectations. Were you surprised that Heim Bloom was fired? And just what was your overall thoughts and reaction to the decision to let him go? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily surprised. And I think the more you learned about how the last few months have gone, um, it became more and more apparent that it was a move that needed to be made. And I almost feel like there is some sentiment by folks that it should have really happened last year based on how the trade deadline went and some of the things and we could talk about some of those missteps. Um, I think the fan base has really been asking for Bloom's head in a platter um, probably around 80 to 90% yeah. for about a year. Um, I really think that they haven't liked the direction of the team, particularly the direction of the offseason, the type of trades that haven't been made, the type of big name players that have brought in. Uh, I was talking about this with somebody who I'm, I'm close with, who's, you know, grew up around the area, works in the game of baseball, is very knowledgeable. We were talking about a little bit. I was probably defending Bloom a little bit in his tenure and some of the things that he did, you know, in a positive manner. We can talk about that as well. But the thing that he brought up was, you know, who's the guy that's selling the jerseys? And it's a silly thing to ask, but I think here in Boston where, um, or Massachusetts, generally in New England, where Boston sports is so enrooted in the culture and just the day-to-day, your apparel, all those sort of things. It was so common for so long to see a Pedro Martinez, Ramirez, you know, Ortiz jersey, Dustin Pedroia, Mookie Betts, you know, all these guys down the line. There's nobody like that any longer, really. You know, there's no name um, because it's not really Devers. You know, there's no guy any longer. And I think that's a problem in a market like this where there's so much attention that fans want to pay to the Red Sox, but there's nothing really drawing them in. Um, And I feel like that's a, a big, a bigger organizational problem. And I don't know how much of that is bloom and the types of players that he targeted versus the front, the, excuse me, ownership and the amount of investment they were willing to make in free agency to go after those types of players. Now the good, 
I think that he's done an excellent job of building organiz organizational depth. Player development has improved under High and Bloom. We've seen, I think, players not just like one to five or one to 10 make strides within the organization. When we look back at like who ranks within the top of the organization, sort of going into handbook season here, it's the 20 to 50, that 20 to 50, 20 to 60 group even. There's a lot more arms this, this year than there's ever been before. There, there was a significant amount of breakouts on the pitching side, which is something historically the Red Sox have really not done very well. Outside of John Lester and Clay Buckholtz in that generation, it's been a pretty down period for Red Sox pitching, you know, going back before that for 20 years and sort of post 20 years or so now um, that we're in this, this last generation. They've done a great job at that. Um, I think that, you know, Bloom did a good job of targeting certain profiles within the draft, spreading money around. I think his last couple of drafts have been pretty good. I will say as well, I think that what he did staying out of the 2022 free, free agency bonanza may turn out to be one of the smarter things that happened. And I'm not so sure that he even meant to do that on purpose. Um, so I think that that's something when we look back on this, it's probably better that he didn't give somebody 11 years and, uh, you know, $250 million or it was even player besides Xander Bogarts, just that kind of a, a contract doesn't look great right now. As we, we take a step back and look at some of these mega deals that have happened. Um, the major screw ups though, are the trade are the trade deadlines the last two years. Uh, the one that looms largest for me is the 2022 trade deadline and the non-trade of J.D. Martinez at that point. I think the organization, for whatever reason, and Bloom had this glimmer of hope that they could still make the playoffs that crashed quickly afterward. I think they've kind of done that, maybe been a little bit too optimistic the last two trade deadlines and haven't really picked a direction, uh, whether that's to buy or to sell. And I think the prudent decision both times probably would have been to sell, certainly was last season when you had so many expiring contracts of stars that you did not plan to resign. Guys like Nate Eovaldi. But the biggest one is J.D. Martinez. They had deals in place, I will not say who, but with a, a bigger free agent, uh, a bigger market team, um, and a prospect that I'll say was ranked adjacent to the top 100 for a long time. Um, that they could have traded for J.D. Martinez on deadline day. What that J.D. Martinez deal would have triggered was it would have gotten them below the luxury tax, which would have given them more spending power actually last offseason. But also um, both their compensation picks this season would have been higher in the draft. Um, so they cost themselves draft position and draft capital and potentially bonus pool money. Um, but they also cost themselves the opportunity to maybe sign a better player. Uh, so I think that is a, that's a fairly substantial oversight in the fact that they had multiple players they could have moved. And that's the kind of J.D. Martinez, that J.D. Martinez move, that's the kind of move where you could have traded him for an org guy and it would have made sense. It would have been a prudent decision and you would have been able to actually get a prospect in the scenario that I've been told about. So I think that's a big part of it. This trade day deadline, what I've been told is uh, Paxton was, was on the market, was shopped around. Um, there were several opportunities to trade Paxton. That's one of the reasons that there was a lull in the middle of trade deadline day, if you remember, uh, as they were waiting for the Red Sox to make a decision on whether they were going to keep or trade James Paxton. They ultimately kept him. 
they don't make the playoffs. They're now going to finish finish in last place, more than likely. Um, and that was another deal where they could have gotten some prospect capital. If we look at some of the deals that were made on that day for similar value pitchers that maybe you know wouldn't have cost as much even, um, there were deals to be made. Players that could have been brought in, reinforcements is a good farm system, but that certainly would have helped even further to reinforce that, hey, this is a deep farm system with a lot of players that are ready to contribute or some trade chips that we can move this offseason um, for a player that, you know, a star that hopefully we can lock up. That's where they need to get to. And I think ultimately this was the right decision for the Red Sox moving forward, despite some of the good things that Bloom did, despite the fact that Bloom is a really likable guy and will talk to people and answer questions. And that's always appreciated, I think, for us in media. Um, so it's not something we wanted to cheer against, but at the same time, does he have that killer instinct to make those decisive decisions, move forward in a certain direction and try to build, uh, an, another, you know, championship caliber team, because that's what Boston fans and this marketplace really have come to uh, expect. And I don't think that he's the guy to take the system as healthy as it is right now in that next direction. There's some good young players that have come up. There's been a lot of positives. I think this team overall, I think if you took a step back from what your expectations were coming into the season, has probably overachieved some. Um, so there are some positives there. They're not riddled with the bad contracts that they had been in years past, uh, but they do have a pretty significant conundrum with what to do with Trevor Story if Trevor Story is ever going to hit and be the kind of player he is outside of Colorado long term. Um, and that's a big question. And there is some money in the books for him. Sale has another year or two left on his contract. We have to see how that sort of all shakes out. It's not a perfect situation, but I do think it's a, it's the kind of situation that if you get a decision maker that's decisive and, you know, the mold of, we'll say a Dave Dombrowski or someone, you know, of that ilk that can come in, make deals, negotiate things and push them over the hump. That's kind of what they need right now. I don't think Kyan Bloom ultimately is the guy that was going to be able to do that. And he's shown it a mismanagement at the major league level. I think other areas of the organization he's done very well. It really comes down to how he's mismanaged the major league team. And that's the one that matters the most. <laughs> yeah. And, and I wrote about that, um, you know, when the announcement came in at 9.27 a.m. here on the West Coast Man Box, he had been fired. I wrote about that, that, a lot of good things were done, but at the end of the day, the failures outweighed the successes in the major leagues with major league roster decisions. And that's what counts the most. I think we have to take a step back and acknowledge a few things that Heimblum came in to a very, very tough situation. He came in when ownership was fixated on financial flexibility and with Mookie Betts only having one year left on his deal, knowing what kind of contract he was going to command and with ownership emphasizing financial flexibility he was put in a tough spot of having to be the guy to trade Mookie Betts because you could keep him for that last year and then he walks, but then all you get is a comp pick or you trade him with one year and you say, we think we can get more and that might be what's best for long-term health of this organization. But if you do that, you have to make sure you get as close to equal value as possible. And they just did not do that. And that's not in hindsight. Uh, we wrote about and talked about it the moment that trade came through that it was not going to be a winning trade for the Red Sox or even a, a equal trade for the Red Sox. Again, that's not necessarily on high and bloom because when ownership's emphasizing financial flexibility and you have this kind of contract coming up, you more or less have to take the best offer you can get, even if it's not a great offer. So, you know, that's a tough spot for him to be in that same spring. 
Alex Cora was suspended for his role in the Red Sox sign stealing scandal. The Red Sox were stripped of their second round pick for their own sign stealing infractions back in 2018 and COVID hit. So he entered a really, really tough situation in 2020, just organizationally, as well as baseball as a whole. And I think it's, you have to acknowledge that. And from there, some good things happen, right? You take that really tough start. They were able to build out some improvements in player development. Again, Tristan Cassis and Brian Bayo and Jaron Duran were all drafted by the previous regime, but they did a good job helping those guys get better, move up the farm system, take positive steps, and ultimately get to the major leagues where they've been positive contributors. We've talked about that they've drafted well, and some that's having higher picks. You know, having Marcelo Mayer fall to them at fourth overall was, you know, not exactly a masterstroke on their part. It was a great player fell into their laps and don't think twice, you take them. But at the same time, this farm system is much healthier than it was when he took over. Um, entering the 2019 season, the Red Sox ranked 30th in farm system rankings. Again, it was fine. You trade a lot of really good young prospects for big leaguers who helped you win a World Series. Um, but there was going to be a lull. And to the credit of Heim Bloom and his staff, they continuously drafted good players, made some good international signings, helped guys get better to the point they're now fifth in our 2023 midseason update. From 30th to 5th is a pretty pretty big climb, even in four years. So some things were done structurally that were positive, but as you mentioned, at the end of the day, what happens in the major leagues is what matters most. And you talk about the missed opportunities. What really stood out to me was, well, there are a few things. First and foremost, the issues never got better. You know, this starting rotation under High and Bloom in the four seasons where they where he was in charge – Star rotation ranked 25th, 17th, 22nd, and currently right now 22nd again in ERA. This rotation has been a problem. It's been very, very visible. The starting pitchers have not been good enough, and that hasn't been sufficiently addressed. And they they made some, you know, Nate Uvalde pitched well for them. They did not resign him. Michael Waka pitched well for them. They did not resign him. This was a team that needed starting pitching help. They had guys who could help them in-house, and they just let them walk, which is not yeah. smart. The other thing is this defense has been horrendous for years and nothing has been done to help it get better, which partially plays into why the rotation has been terrible. So the things that were going wrong were not getting better. The rotation was not being improved upon consistently. The defense was not getting better. And, you know, you talk about Xander Bogarts and he has not been very good with the Padres this year, although he's been a little better recently. It's a big adjustment, new league, new team, cross country. It's, it's a big change, but Signing him for 11 years, $280 million would not have been the smart thing for the Red Sox to do. And I said at the time, it was not the smart thing for the Padres to do. But suggesting before that, that he was only worth adding one year and $30 million on his existing deal just showed a fundamental misunderstanding of the value of major league players. And, and that's a theme we've seen throughout the regime that never sat well with me. You look at giving Trevor Story six years, 140, when he had a bad elbow coming out of course Field but only being willing to give Xander Bogarts one year and 30 million on top of his existing deal. I mean, there's no question you give Xander Bogarts six, one forty while you have the chance, even eight two twenty five would have made a lot of sense. And the other thing that followed up with that is after they lost Xander Bogarts, they signed Rafael Devers to that 10 year, uh, $313 million extension. But the comment that was made before that, that, that bothered me a little bit was after Xander Bogarts, Sign with the Padres, and there is a lot of pressure on the Red Sox to sign Rafael Devers. Excuse me, it's eleven years, three hundred thirty-one million dollars. 
High and Blue made a comment about we are going to go beyond reason or above reason, something to that effect to sign Rafael Devers. And then they signed him for 11 years, $331 million. That's not above or beyond reason for a player of that caliber. That's what these free agents cost. And I think to me, it showed a disconnect in understanding major league player evaluations. And we've seen that with X-Rays executives at the time coming from that thrifty mindset, not really fully appreciating, no, this is what star players cost and this is what you have to pay them and that they will be worth it. So I think for me, when you just look at the pitching staff was a perennial issue, the rotation did not get better. The defense was a perennial issue, did not get better. And just that consistent misinterpretation and misunderstanding of what actual values of major league players were. Ultimately, that is what sunk him. And, and we talk about at the end of the day, what happens in the major leagues is what matters. Two last place finishes on pace for a third last place finish with the team he built. Three last place finishes in four years is not going to get it done in almost any market and especially Boston. Um, I do think Chaim Bloom is a smart baseball mind. I think he's one of the classiest people in baseball. He will get another chance. We see a lot of front office officials, their first time as an executive, you know, they struggle, they learn some lessons, they come back and they're great their second or third time through. And I think Chaim Bloom has a chance to be that. He will get another opportunity at some point. And I think as long as he, you know, like anyone else in life, you learn from your mistakes, you apply them moving forward and hopefully turn those into successes. Um, but I think just recognizing that that these were the flaws and that it wasn't clear it was going to get better in Boston, particularly in the environment he was in with ownership's expectations. Um, I, I understand why the move was made, even though it certainly surprised me to receive the email the moment I did. I mm -hmm. did not necessarily think it would happen right now. I, I want to kind of move forward, though, Jeff, into what's next for the Red Sox. Again, they're on track to finish in last place for the third time in four years. How far away do you think this team is from contention? If a new executive comes in, how long is it going to take for them to get back to what Red Sox nation has become accustomed to? Yeah, you know, I think it all depends. Um, how aggressive will the new GM be in year one? Um, if it's somebody that's going to go out there and will sign three or four big value free agents, we'll add two starting pitchers, we'll go out and get uh, a Shohei Otani um, and another pl player, you know, that's of that sort of upper echelon and this free agent class, someone who's willing to potentially trade out um, a cache of high value prospects for some upgrades at the major league level and players that maybe have a few years of, uh, you know, their contract or, or team control remaining. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out. I do think typically we shouldn't be expecting playoffs until 2025, um, any real competitive shot until probably 2026 at this point. Um, I think there are a lot of good young players that are on the cusp here. Um, they have some veteran players they can move out as well. Um, but they're not quite deep enough positionally. And I think they're somewhat flawed if you, as you've talked about defensively uh, as to where they're at now, you know, do you want to proceed forward with Devers now that he's sort of your linchpin of your offense? Do you want to proceed with him as a third baseman every day uh, going forward? You know, he's not getting any younger. He's going to be 27, 28 next year. I think this might be around the time that maybe you, transition this guy over to first base DH. I think he's really not all that dissimilar 
uh, from Vladimir Guerrero Jr., frankly. Um, so I think you need some players around him. Like I said, Yoshida's a nice young player. We have to see what story can be with a full offseason. But then you look around the rest of this big league roster, and it's like, well, you're Abreu. Probably not somebody that's going to be on the next great Red Sox team. As solid as he's been, and we'll talk about him a little in a moment or two. Justin Turner is 38, 39 years old. Uh, Alex Verdugo, I think, has another year remaining on his contract. But... There's a lot of discipline issues there, which is not a yeah. surprise to anyone who, who knew him. <laughs> that was what I was about to say. Is I don't know how much longer he's going to be here in Boston or if he's somebody that the new GM wants to have on his team, frankly, or in the clubhouse. Um Adam Duvall was an interesting case as somebody who's produced when he's been on the field. Did they bring him back? Uh, we talked about Yoshida. Then like Reese McGuire, Louis Urias, I mean, you know, um, Connor Wong. Like the catching's been fine, but I think your first-round draft pick this year is probably your future catcher. Um, I think Dahlback and how he's been handled has been kind of mismanaged. Um, probably should have been moved a couple years ago. Um, Sidney Raffaella, I think, is a nice player. Um, could be, be an everyday guy just because of how good he is defensively but still has some things to work out at the major league level and then you look at their pitching staff and cutter coffee's been a nice breakout this year brian bayo is a legitimate long-term rotation piece i don't think the better cutter crawford is... cutter coffee's their uh, prospect oh, oh excuse me cutter crawford i yeah i misspoke and said cutter coffee uh alliteration uh messed with my brain there but yes cutter crawford i think has had a really nice year this year he's made some major strides looks like he is a rotation piece probably a back end which which is fine and then you have Bayo, who's legitimate. The bullpen's been surprisingly decent this year. I think they still have some more bullpen pieces that can be coming through the pipeline over the next couple of years. But there's no true start. I mean, Tristan Cassis is the other sort of uh, guy that we're me- we should probably mention here. He's obviously in the IL right now. Um, but he's a long-term piece. So you you boil it down to Devers, Cassis, Jaron Duran. Duran was very good this year. As and well. then Jaron Jaron Duran as well, um, but Duran only has what two years of control yet left? Three years left? Three years left to control? I got to double check on his contract status just because I don't know if he's necessarily here for the long term either. Jaron so Duran will be a free agent in twenty twenty nine. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, so he's got yeah, a bunch of years remaining. Yeah, I, I just because he's been up and down so much, I wasn't sure how much service time he'd accrued. So yeah, well, I guess that's. That's sort of good for them as well because all of his productive years are going to be there because he's an older prospect. So, or was an older prospect. Um, yeah. So I think Duran's probably a piece there as well. But this isn't a competitive core. I mean, I I don't know how many like year in year out all stars you have there, or if you even have any MVP candidates because I don't think Raphael Devers really is. I think he's sort of that tier below of a consistent all star, good hitter, but. Um, not an MVP level guy. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably two years away. They have to add and supplement quite a bit still. Yeah, it, it's going to take time. This this probably isn't a quick fix. Again, it's going to require a lot defensively, uh, complete rotation overhaul, and you know, letting these young guys continue to take steps forward and, and filling in better players around them than Christian Arroyo. The Kike Hernandez deal obviously did not work out. Um, it, it's going to be a, a process, and we'll see how much of a of a of a runway the next Red Sox GM gets because it seems like no matter how successful you are you pretty much get four years we saw it with Ben Charrington we saw it with Dave Dombrowski and then we saw it with Haim Bloom so 
we'll see what that process looks like. Jeff, wrapping up here, September call-ups, there have been a couple of guys who have come up and, and done well. Again, small samples. It's uh, September 18th as we here record this, so we're talking about less than three full weeks. But nonetheless, there are some guys that have come up and you know shown some things that, that were certainly impressive. I think you have to start with Jason Dominguez. The Yankees came up, hit four home runs in eight games before, unfortunately, uh, suffering a torn UCL that will require Tommy John surgery. Again, Dominguez has been very, very, very highly touted since he signed for $5.1 million as an amateur. Um, the pandemic season almost added to the mystery because he didn't get to come out and play. And, you know, he's had a lot of pressure on him from day one. I mean, it was kind of crazy what was happening to him down the minors. He had security guards to escort him around. It was really just kind of a circus. And to his credit, he's kept a good head on his shoulders and he moved pretty quickly. Got to the majors this year as a 20-year-old. Um, hit really, really well the second half of the year, double A, triple A to earn the call. What are your, were your overall impressions of Jason Dominguez? Again, it's only eight games and you never want to go too crazy over small samples, good or bad. Um, but look, it was a loud, loud, loud introduction to Yankees and Yankee fandom. What are your overall thoughts on Jason Dominguez and and the kind of September call up he had? Yeah, I think it's too bad, obviously, that we didn't get a um, a full month or, you know, Dominguez playing and we'll see how he recovers from the injury but really from July 1st on there was a pretty substantial development um, with Dominguez I think he was just a little bit less passive than he was early on um, you know when he was getting his footing over the last three months and uh, first three months in the Eastern League and he just took a, a big step forward started to hit for more impact um, the strikeouts were never really a massive issue um, you know always is going to walk. It's just the kind of profile that he has, but I thought they found a good bait, uh, a good balance of sort of aggressiveness and, and patience and sort of a happy medium and was able to succeed. Got the call. The triple a was pretty good there. Then I went up to the majors and was great there. Um, I don't know if he's a center fielder long-term, he's probably their best option in, in center field um, going forward. So I think he's a guy that should be, you know, up from day one, whenever he's physically ready and able to perform. Um, it may not be until May or whatever, but uh, just got to see how the injury sort of shakes out there. But I thought it was pretty good. He's got great approach. You know, one of the things I always sort of go back to is that approach like that guys that walk at that rate, typically uh, their slumps are, aren't as bad um, because they're going to continue to get, get on base and score runs, you know, create opportunities offensively, work deep in accounts. So he does all those things really well. He's still very young. I think there's more development to come. Um, while the Martian and the crazy comps that we heard when he initially signed are probably not necessarily fair. I think this is a very good young player and somebody that could develop into a consistent like year in year out all-star. So I think there's still a ton of upside, whether he gets there or not, we'll see. Um, but I think it was a pretty good season for Dominguez. And I think he took a really huge step forward as a player and as a hitter at the plate in particular um, in the second half of this year and has a lot of momentum going into the next year. Unfortunately, the injury sort of curbs that a little bit. Yeah, I think what really, really impressed me, look, obviously the power, he's a big, strong guy. We knew that, especially from the left side. Um, you know, he can put a charge into a ball, and, and we saw that. He was major league debut. He homers off Justin Verlander, Oppo. I, I think what really stood out was just, again, the approach. You know, I, what I always look for when guys come up is do they look overmatched? Is, you know, big league stuff just confounding them? And he looked very, very comfortable, really, I mean, pretty early on, especially from the left side. 
I mean, he was tracking velo. He was tracking good breaking stuff, knew the strike zone. Look, there's some swing and miss there. And, you know, he took some called third strikes. I mean, it's still a young kid who's still learning his way and, you know, facing big league stuff for the first time. But he was on time. He was tracking pitches. I thought just the approach and the overall ability to just manage and handle that bat was really, really impressive and a really good sign moving forward. You know, that stood out to me as much as the power because, Again, we knew he had power, but you never really know how a guy is going to fare against big league stuff, how comfortable he's going to look until he's in the box facing it. We can, you know, draw conclusions based off of what we're seeing in the minors, but you never really know. And I think seeing a 20-year-old kid come up, look as comfortable in the box as he did, not be phased by good velocity, good breaking stuff, not be phased by playing in Yankee Stadium, trying to overswing, none of that. I mean... Again, I just saw a lot of composure, a lot of professional quality at bats, and that was really, really good to see. And I think it's a really good place for him to work from moving forward. Um, two other guys that that have really, really impressed me, September call-ups here real quick before we wrap up. You know, Ronnie Mauricio with the Mets, he's someone who's always had tremendous tools. You see the physicality, you saw the power, you saw the athleticism, but he was just so, 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 so aggressive. It was hard to to really, really be convicted that he was going to hit big league pitching. And again, it's it's small sample. We're talking 13 games, but we saw him this year at AAA. The walks went up, the strikeouts went way down. He's still aggressive, but he just found a better balance. He was making more contact. You know, everything improved across the board. You know, average career high in homers. We saw him really, really take a jump. Excuse me, he was on pace for a career high in homers before he got called up. And he's coming to the major leagues. And again, you know, right away, you saw that 440 foot home run, but it's more than that. It's the frequency of the contact. It's the 15 hits in 13 games, you know, the strikeouts, you know, again, they're still higher than you'd like, but it's and even that we're not really, I mean, it's actually under 25%. I mean, this is a guy who for a long time was just so, so, so overly aggressive in the minors. That was the concern, but we saw him take the strides the right way this year in triple a, and he's maintained them in the majors. And then the other guy, Kyle Hurt for the Dodgers, only, again, one outing, two innings. But the thing with Kyle Hurt, and, and I've known him since he was at Torrey Pines High School, all the way through USC, all the way through the minors and the Dodgers system, I think the biggest thing with Kyle Hurt, he's always had stuff. But just to be frank, he lacked command and, and he really lacked composure. That was a big, big thing with him really throughout his career, especially at USC. And for him to go out in his big league debut and retire Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto, Manny Machado on nine pitches, and then come out the second inning and just blow the rest of the Padres lineup away. That was super impressive. It wasn't just the stuff. It was the efficiency. He pounded the strike zone, commanded the baseball, and have the composure to get those guys out in that situation. Again, he had a big lead. It wasn't high leverage, but it's still Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado, and Juan Soto in your first big league inning. He mowed him down. That was impressive to see. So for me, it's seeing the guys who you knew had talent taking the steps forward and applying them in the majors, that to me is what stands out. And, and Mauricio and Hurt are two guys who have done that big time for me. What about you, Jeff, in terms of September call-ups who have impressed you? Sure. I'm going to uh, kind of skirt the rules a little bit here and say Willie Abreu. He was technically called up um, prior to September, then went on the paternity list, and then came back on September 1st. So uh, I'm going to I'm gonna count the paternity list as uh, – part of the September call-up process here. And I, I think Abreu is a guy that went a little bit underrated these last couple of years, even when he was in the Astros system, somebody that um, I had actually put under that list and then he was traded. 
and you know I, I managed the Red Sox list in season as well. Um, and he's kind of steadily moved up that list too. Um, had a really good season at AAA. He's had a couple of good productive years in the minor leagues. Um, not terribly old at 24 years old. Can play all three outfield positions. So you probably want him in a corner. Um, kind of a sneaky athlete, but kind of built like a powder keg. Almost <laughs> like a, he, he looks like he's like a third down back. Like that's that's like what his build is, you know. Um, but he can run a little bit. Um, there is some power there. There's pretty good plate skills. Uh, he will swing and miss a little bit, but he keeps it in check enough, walks enough that it kind of offsets. Um, and I think he's kind of like your perfect fourth outfielder or 10th position player, if you know what I mean, where you can kind of put him in the lineup and, you know, four or five days a week and give guys rest and kind of put him in platoon situations where he's going to hit, though he does hit both, uh, both handedness pretty well. Um, so he's been, he's been interesting. I thought he's been sort of a, a welcome surprise here for the Red Sox. Maybe build a little bit of value could be like a secondary piece in a trade or something to, to or third piece in, in a trade to pull a player. Um, so he's been encouraging. I thought he's been pretty good. And like I said, I think the versatility as well that he can play all three outfield positions um, is interesting. Uh, the other guy I'm going to talk about here has had a couple of really good starts for the Tigers over the last week or two. Um, and that is uh, Sawyer Gibson Long, uh, who was taken back in 2019, I believe in the sixth or seventh round at a Mercer. Yeah, um, Kyle Lewis, uh, alma mater. Yes, exactly. Um, really, really interesting player. Um, taller guy, sort of the perfect starter body where he's, you know, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, um, broad shoulders and strong, you know. Um, crazy extension the thing that sticks out with him if you watch him is he gets way down the mound i think he's probably going to be one of the extension leaders in in mlb uh and it's allowed his stuff to sort of play above um you know what it looks like and just the stuff plus numbers um even those have been pretty good of course because of the extension etc but um it's not like he's throwing you know 97 miles an hour um you know he's sitting 92 to 94 95 mixes in a pretty good slider and a change up um will show a cutter variation as well uh but over these two starts he's been pretty good um and sort of an underrated starter and these are the guys that i always try to pay attention to when they get up to the majors because they're a little bit older maybe the numbers don't overwhelm you um there's bigger name guys and we sort of miss it sometimes um he sort of seems like one had 11 k's against of course it was the angels and the angels September 16th lineup is not the angels uh, April 16th lineup of course, in terms of quality, but still it was a major league lineup striking out 11 going five. He did it previously against the white Sox. He's had some, some, some rosy matchups thus far against two down lineups, but at the same time, this could be a back end major league starter. that has got some interesting traits and just somebody that um, has gotten some headlines and buzz of like, who is this guy and why is he performing like this? And I think uh, those are always the most interesting September call-ups because sometimes those guys can have five, six, seven-year major league careers, some of those older pitchers, and be a number four, number five starter and be a little bit better than you think. And I think uh, Gibson Long seems to have some of those traits. Yeah, he was acquired at the trade deadline last year by the Twins, uh, or by the Tigers, excuse me, from uh, the Twins for Michael Fulmer. So, yeah. you know, again, one of those deadline deals that could pay dividends. All right, Jeff, before we wrap up here, again, pennant race time, a lot of playoff spots still to be decided. 
What's the number one thing you're watching for here as we head down the stretch here, these final uh, 12 odd, some odd games or so across major league baseball. Yeah. I know that the, uh, the AL East has gotten all the headlines this year for how strong that division has been uh, overall. But I think the one that probably has captivated me the most is how the AL West division title race is going to shake out. Um, You have the Astros, the Rangers, and Seattle all within a, a game two and a half two games, right games of each other, right? Would two you and a half games right two now. Two and a half each other. from top to bottom. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's only a handful of games here. It's really interesting how that could shake out. Anything could happen. Any one of these three teams could potentially uh, make it. And the thing is, whoever wins this division is also going to have a first, uh, is going to have a, a, a buy as well. Uh, correct, right? Yep. Yeah. With, with, with yeah. the twins, it's, the way they're, they're struggling. playing, and then the the third of the division winners, which is almost certainly going to be Minnesota, unless they go on an absolute rampage over these last couple of weeks. So I think it, like not only the fact that it really is going to shake out how the wild card race settles in, it's also going to impact who gets that first round by. And I feel like it, it, it's it's the most interesting. The NL race is really interesting as well, but. That AL West race right now, because there's so many different things that can shake out and it really impacts the way the AL playoffs look. Uh, that's the one that has my most attention and the one that I'm able to pay the most attention to because they touch on a few different timelines as well. So I can watch an earlier East Coast game, uh, watch a Central game if it's the the Astros, and then, and then jump in and watch a, a West Coast game if it's uh, – uh, 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 excuse me, um, Seattle, of course. So, yeah, it's a really interesting division, and uh, it makes for good watching, and it, you can track it easier than other divisions, I think. I think that is certainly going to be the number one thing to watch, how the AL West shakes out. I think looking at this final few weeks between the Rays and Orioles to see who wins the East and who has to go into a wild card series, that's something to really, really watch for. The end of wild card chase is something I'm going to be watching closely. The Phillies should, for all intents and purposes, get in. They're in good position. They're three and a half games up in the wild card race for the top spot right now. They're they're in really, really good position. I think the team that I'm kind of watching is actually the Marlins. I feel like they've, under the radar, had a very, very good year this year. As of today, they're currently tied for the Cubs right now, tied with the Cubs right now, excuse me, for the third and final NL wild card spot. And I think you have to give Kim Ang and, and her staff credit. You know, the Marlins have had a really good pitching staff for many years now. I mean, this has been a, a really, really good pitching organization in terms of whether it's acquiring guys in trades, drafting or national signees, developing them and, and turning them into really good pitchers. I think for the Marlins to be as competitive as they've been in a year where Sandy Alcantara has been not nearly as effective and, and he's currently injured. Trevor Rogers got hurt. He only made four starts. But they've gotten some really good outings from Jesus Lazardo, Braxton Garrett, Yuri Perez when he's been up. Um, this, this is a good rotation, even with some guys not performing or not healthy. But I think you really have to give them credit for what they did offensively. You know, we've talked about this for years. They have this great staff, but they, they just can never get the bats they needed. And for a long time, the Marlins were going after these this big athlete type, you know, power speed, but they just couldn't hit Lewis Brinson's the world, the Monty Harrison's the world, even the Ice and Diaz is the world. He wasn't as big as those guys, but you know, the idea athletic had some power, but just 
couldn't hit enough. And I thought they did a really good job. You know, obviously Pablo Lopez has been really good in Minnesota, but the Twins, uh, excuse me, the Marlins had enough pitching. They needed hitters and hitters who could make contact, and they got the best contact hitter in the game, acquiring Luis Arias. Um, I think two moves at the deadline that are going under the radar, Jake Berger and Josh Bell have been huge for that offense. They've been fantastic deadline additions. Jorge Soler's had a nice bounce back season. Um, I, I think the Marlins are just kind of fun because this is a team that has a good pitching staff. They've done a good job acquiring hitters that can help them over the past year. And hey, when the Marlins win the wild card, they tend to win the World Series. So at least not in shortened 2020 seasons. So uh, you never know whenever the Marlins make it the postseason as a wild card. But I'm going to be curious to see if they can get into the postseason here. I, again, as we record this, they are currently tied for the final in a wild card spot. They're right there. They're in this. And um, I'm just going to be watching to see if they can sneak in here because, you know, with that pitching staff, it wouldn't shock me if they win a wild card series. If you just can throw Lizardo game one and and we'll see, you know, how some of the uh, their other pitchers are health wise. I mean, they've got stuff. They, they, They can do some things there. So we'll see what the Marlins are able to do. All right, Jeff. Well, this has been a fun hour-plus podcast talking Orioles, Red Sox, September call-ups, playoffs, and it's, again, it's that time of year, a lot of good stuff all around, and uh, we'll have more podcasts down the stretch, and once the playoffs start, we'll have daily playoff podcasts as we always do. I'll be up at 5.30 in the morning West Coast time after covering games till 1 a.m. the night before, so I might not be coherent, but I will be here. I know Jeff will be here too, and JJ and the rest of the gang. Jeff, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure as always. Absolutely. All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on whatever platform you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We'd love to hear from you. For Jeff Ponce, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, everybody. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done.